0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking
1: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Hi, Dan. Happy Bastille Day. Sure.
2: It's... Bastille Day for those who celebrate, or I guess now when people are listening, it's the day after Bastille Day. So happy day after Bastille Day to everyone. And happy few
1: days after the Emmy nominations. We've got a very big episode to get to, breaking down all things Emmys, and a fantastic interview with the head writer for Miss Marvel. And spoiler alert, we will get into the finale.
2: We definitely get into the finale. It's it's sort of a mixed bag on spoilers, but definitely don't, uh, you know... You probably want to watch the finale before listening to the interview is all we will say.
1: Yeah, this is another one of our favorite interviews. I will I will tease with that. So before we get into all of that, let's start off where how we usually do headlines.
2: Number one.
1: Leading off, the bear has earned a speedy second season renewal at FX. FX. Apple has picked up Loot for a second season, and Hulu has granted a third season to only Murders in the Building. And a reminder, you can listen to our interviews with the showrunners from Loot and The Bear in episodes 174 and
2: 175, respectively. Two solid consecutive episodes with shows people are talking about on television this summer. In casting news, Aaron Paul, Josh Hartnett, Zazie Beats, and Kate Mara will lead the cast of Black Mirror Season 6 for Netflix. And Netflix's Bridgerton star Jonathan Bailey has joined Matthew Bomer in Showtime's The Travelers.
1: In other streaming pickups, Criminal Minds is officially a go again at Paramount Plus after prolonged negotiations with the cast and showrunner. And in other series news, Peaky Blinders boss Stephen Knight is spearheading a biopic about automaker Enzo Ferrari for Apple.
2: Over at Netflix, season four of Sex Education is getting creatively retooled with series regulars Tanya Reynolds, that would be the actress, behind alien-obsessed Lily, among those not returning. Fair enough, we suppose. Season 3 saw Moordale High closed, and Season 4 will feature a new school with some recurring cast and a number of newcomers. You'll recall, of course, that Season 3 ends with the story going off in a, a bunch of potential different directions. So far, we know that the aforementioned Reynolds, plus also Patricia Allison, who plays Ola, and another of the Bridgerton breakouts, Simone Ashley, who played Olivia, will not be returning. Uh, But additional details should be available. And you can, of course, go back and listen to our podcast interview with Laurie Nunn, who talked about where the show was going forward after season three. When was that podcast interview, Leslie?
1: That would be episode 138 from October 1st, 2021. In executive news, Spectrum Originals boss Catherine Pope is returning to the studio side and will serve as president of Sony Pictures Television Studios, replacing Jeff Frost as the indie studio continues to weather executive and showrunner departures. Elsewhere, Bad Robot head of television Ben Stevenson is leaving the J.J. Abrams banner for a production deal with ITV. Bad Robot has promoted Rachel Rush Rich to replace him at the Warner Brothers Discovery-based company.
2: On the overall deals front, Phoebe Robinson and her Everything's Trash showrunner Jonathan Groff, no, not that Jonathan Groff, the Jonathan Groff who worked on Blackish, have extended their packs with ABC Signature, the studio behind their upcoming freeform series. And if we haven't plugged enough uh, TV's top five guests in the past, say, 10 minutes on this podcast, Minx creator and former TV's top five guest Ellen Rappaport has inked a deal with producers Lionsgate TV. Leslie, when was that interview?
1: That would be episode 159 from March 11th, 2022.
2: And Max Borenstein, the showrunner of Winning Time, and of course... Going with the theme, another former TV's Top 5 guest has extended his pact with HBO. Leslie, when was that interview?
1: That would be podcast 158 from March 4th, 2022. Excellent. And in cancellations and following up on another recent segment about the so-called nets, which no one really refers to them as that anyway, Nassim Pedrad comedy Chad has been scrapped at TBS. Season two had already been filmed and will be shot to other platforms as TNT and TBS bail on originals under Warner Brothers Discovery's new executive regime. All that remains are the final season of Snowpiercer on TNT. TBS has the anthology Miracle Workers and animated comedy American Dad. And that's it on the scripted front. Remember the good old days, Dan, with all those networks? And like USA had like 10 or 12 or 15 scripted originals. Yeah, they're gone.
2: There is no way that I am ever going to hear T-nets without thinking that it's a patch that you put on to increase your testosterone level. So uh, so if that's what they want to call it. They can absolutely do that, but they're not going to change the way I view it. Uh, do, you, do you have an answer or an explanation or a theory regarding the exact timing of the Chad uh, scrapping and why it was beneficial for them to pull it without actually airing these episodes that they've now been promoting in multiple premiere dates? It's acceptable if you have no answer. I'm just kind of intrigued by the, the weirdness of the timing on this.
1: I mean, I can just read the tea leaves here, and you know it. it does. does. Tea leaves al- is
2: is that like a tea net? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Reading the tea leaves, tea hyphen leaves. Anyway, continue. <sighs> Sorry. Oi vey.
1: oi ve, oi with the vase uh, No, I can. My theory is basically that they didn't want to spend the money to promote it, and yeah, it's one thing to put out a press release and and tout a premiere date. And is, you know, put together a teaser trailer, but it's another thing to actually mark promote and market the show. And that's a lot of money that you're investing in, in something. And, you know, look, they did the same thing with that uh, reality dating show that was going to be hosted by what was it, someone from the Bachelor franchise. You know, it's the same thing. You don't want to pay to market something that you know you're not gonna invest in. So in this case, while Chad did have its critical supporters, I believe our colleague Robin Barr is a big fan of that show. Um <laughs> There's, it's, they're not, they're out of scripted. So why are you going to promote something that doesn't really put in any value toward what your network is going to be? So this is, you know, in in terms of when I think this happened, I'm sure that the timing of this happened sometime after Kathleen Finch was given oversight of all of the linear uh, networks after Warner Brothers Discovery's merger closed. So as you recall from a previous segment or five or 10 that we've done in the last two years plus, The executive regime at both networks that they recently left because they can read the writing on the wall that they've been kind of ignoring for the past two years. But once once Discovery came in here, there's really no need for scripted on these networks because all of your money should be going toward streaming and. While HBO is continuing to spend all of their originals debut at the same time on HBO Max. So it's kind of splitting hairs there. So the TBS and TNT originals, I don't think that they launched the same, that they launch day and date on streaming platforms. I also don't think that there's a big, I don't know, a big demand to watch CHAD. Um, if you'll remember, that bounced around a, a couple of, at a couple of different networks before it landed at back at TBS. When Kevin Riley bought the show originally when he was spear when he was overseeing Fox, and then once he came over to TNT and TBS, he brought it with him. He of course was promoted to oversee HBO Max, and then in 2020, along with Bob Greenblatt, shown the door, and that was all under AT and T. And now you've got Discovery coming in, and it's basically saying we got to cut. Three billion dollars for, you know, in, in cost savings. We need to look for that. Well, let's see. We can save a few million dollars marketing this show that we're not going to make more of because we're not doing scripted on these networks. It's the same thing why they, they canceled some of these other things and ending Snowpiercer for the same reason. So, you know, it would also wouldn't surprise me to eventually see Snowpiercer debut exclusively on HBO Max and not on Linear at all.
2: Fair enough. And wrapping up headlines with just a little bit of development news. The popular Instagram account, My Therapist says, is being turned into a live action TV series with Kenan Thompson set to executive produce. A platform is not yet attached.
1: Yeah, lots going on this week. It's kind of a mixed bag in terms of stuff. But I think the thing that we didn't, that we talked about possibly doing as a topic was, and then decided against it because there's so much to get to with Emmys. But I just want to touch on sex education. I mean, those are some big losses for that show.
2: They are. It comes down to a lot of different things. You you know, you go back again to our interview with Laurie Nunn, and we we talked about sort of the idea of where the show might go in a different location. And if the plot of the show was taking Maeve to America, then that obviously was going to require the introduction of a certain number of new characters, a certain number of new plot elements. I kind of liked the idea of a fish-out-of-water aspect to the story, so I thought it worked. I think of those actresses, uh, who are who are disappearing, I think probably everyone will have a different answer for who they're going to miss most. I mean, I Tanya Reynolds was absolutely one of my favorite things about the show. I, I thought she was hilarious and weird and strange and that they very frequently did interesting things with Lily that I liked. Um, I don't know that I always loved Ola as much, but I thought Patricia Allison was was good. And Simona Ashley did just a great job of taking that character from a position where I didn't care about that character at all or like her in the slightest and actually made her one of my favorite parts of the third season. And she was really, really good in this last season of, of Bridgerton as well. So she's kind of in the position where I assume she has many, many options. And I hope that She finds something really good to do with herself. But, uh, you know, so yes, I will miss all three of those actresses to different degrees. Personally, I'm probably going to miss, uh, Tanya Reynolds the most. Who you, who are you going to miss most of that trio, Leslie? The same. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She, she's really hilarious. She's really hilarious and she's really hilarious in, in such a weird way that I think it is going to take, it takes a certain amount of vision on the part of a, of a writer or showrunner to be like, okay, I can use that strangeness. In a way that's both extremely funny and extremely emotional and i thought sex education did a great job with that so yeah
1: it's just a good show period
2: it really is we we are fans of sex education so i think we will just be generally curious to see where things go
1: yeah and speaking of good shows dan it sounds like a transition
2: number two
1: the emmys are here and to little surprise hbo and succession lead the pack but before we get into all the numbers, which spoiler alert is our next segment, let's start with the actual nominees. Dan, you, you had talked before about Rhea Seahorn and what you were going to do if she wasn't nominated. I know from when we did our Twitter spaces on Tuesday that that was the very, very first thing that you checked to see. And yes, she did get nominated. But before we get into the acting stuff, let's just run down the big categories. Drama series, the nominees are Better Call Saul, Euphoria, Ozark, Severance, Squid Game, which made history in the category. Stranger Things, Succession, and Yellow Jackets. Comedy series, you've got Abbott Elementary, which also made some history on Tuesday. Barry, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Hacks, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Only Murder in the building, Ted Lasso and what we do in the shadows, in the big categories Dan, are you what do you think? Are you happy with how these came through?
2: I'm never going to be completely happy. I feel like that was probably the general statement, full stop, period. I can just go there. I'm never going to be completely happy.
1: Yes, and if you listen to our Twitter spaces combo, which you can still look up on on THR's Twitter handle, um, you can hear all of the ways in which Dan is not
2: happy with it's, these nomination. It's just the the way in which I the way in which I emotionally lead. And so, I mean, of course, as, as I did say on the Twitter spaces, and it was completely true, as soon as I got the 57 page list of the overall nominees, the first thing I did was I looked for Ray Seahorn, and I was Both shocked and pleased to see both that she had been nominated for Better Call Saul, but also that she had received a second nomination for uh, a short that I believe is on AMC Plus or one of those things. So good for her. Great for her. Well-deserved. Wildly, wildly, wildly overdue. So, yeah. And it will be it'll be an interesting conversation going forward as to whether I'm also going to say she deserves to win with the asterisk being, yes, she absolutely deserves to win. And that's even speaking as someone who thinks that Julia Gardner is always great on Ozark, but also someone who thinks that both of those two actresses that should have been submitted as leads, but neither here nor there hold a different conversation. Because we're just talking about the series nominees. So, of the series nominees, it's it's a good list, even in the cases where I don't necessarily like things that were nominated. Like, I'm not a big fan of, of Euphoria. Um, I I the watch fuck, Dan. Sorry. Come on. Whoa, that actually, that actually got a four letter word of incredulity.
1: Come
2: on. <laughs> no, I, I just, really I, honestly, I find it kind of sleazy and exploitative at different times. And, and even when I find it sleazy and exploitative, which I absolutely do, the show, it to me at times feels genuinely leering, particularly anytime the camera is on Sydney Sweeney, who I think is so much better than a lot of the material that she's gotten, or a lot of the things that they've stuck her with doing. And I think that a lot of the show really and truly holds up because of how good she is, because they keep making her do ridiculous things, and she keeps selling it. So I was actually extraordinarily happy to see her double nomination. I, I think that...
1: Yes, of course, for Euphoria and The White Lotus.
2: Exactly. And so so she sort of has gone... She She was kind of being underrated before that. She was sort of... Not overlooked exactly, but uh, you know people people were not necessarily taking her as serious as they should be. The double nomination is saying, "Oh yeah, right, she's also just really good at a lot of the things she does, so anyway, happy with her. a lot of double nominees uh this year I think that's that's one of the interesting things that we can either touch on or or not touch on eventually, but you're looking at the aforementioned Julia Garner, you're looking at Harriet Walter, who of course is Dame Harriet Walter for a reason, nominated for Ted Lasso and Succession, where she plays basically on television, everybody's brittle and withholding mothers. Uh, she's tremendous, next year she should get a nomination for This Is Going to Hurt as well. She is always great. So anyway, where I started with this was with your incredulity that I don't really like Euphoria all that much, and no one will express similar incredulity that I don't like Ozark, uh, but, you know, sort of the degree to which I've made peace with those things being nominated is very high. And a lot of things I really do respect were nominated in, in both of these categories. So, you know, would I have made space for pachinko and this is something that we can again either talk about later or, or not
1: no, let's talk about it now so but, so what do you remove if you put pachinko in there
2: uh, but again i just told i just told you the two shows i don't like so that's that's easy i would absolutely so euphoria
1: okay so if you take euphoria and ozark out and you sub them with Pachinko and what else?
2: Uh, pachinko and something else. It doesn't, it, you know, once, one step at a time would be what I would say. So let's, let's just say I'll get rid of either Euphoria or Ozark. I would say probably that Netflix just didn't really necessarily need the love, but whatever. So yeah, I could, yeah, I could, Three
1: nominations for Netflix in the best drama series category.
2: And those three nominations to me are, are interesting because a lot of the, the rumbling or blowback in disgruntled Twitter Uh, involved Yellowstone and both and sort of several different layers of Yellowstone being shut out entirely. There was the surprise or incredulity that it was shut out, which is confusing to me because it's not like this was the first year Yellowstone was eligible. Like Yellowstone had been basically shut out multiple times previously. So it was going to require a, a large, Change of course from the membership. And it's not like Yellowstone wasn't the most popular cable program on TV the last two years, also. So we sort of have the perception that its profile expanded wildly this year, which it probably did thanks to streaming and all of that. But still, it had been a popular show and it had been snubbed previously. I think the reason why a lot of people, including our colleague Scott, had kind of believed that it was going to get nominated is because it had popped up in a lot of the guild categories that it hadn't been previously. So that's sort of the level on which I understand people being surprised. But then you have conversations, there's the whole, okay, was it snubbed for ideological reasons? And I'm not going to get into that. And then there's the conversation of, does snubbing it reflect Emmy voters being out of touch with the people and does snubbing a show as popular as Yellowstone Speak Badly for the Emmys? And the answer to that question is no, no, it does not. Good God, no, it does not. That's a ridiculous statement. Stop saying it. Because if you actually look at these two drama comedy fields, it's a very populist group. This is not a group of weird-ass little shows on remote streaming services that only your friendly neighborhood television critic has ever seen before. This is not, you know, if they nominated something like As We See It or Somebody Somewhere, shows that we are well on the record as liking, those are tiny little moder- uh, marginal shows, nichey shows, and someone could go, man, they're nominating weird-ass little small stuff. But you look at the nominees on the drama side, and you have Squid Game, which is a gigantic global phenomenon. We do not know really and truly its ratings, but we know it's a phenomenon. You look at Stranger Things. That is a right down the middle populist popular hit. Again, international juggernaut. It's on lunchboxes at Target. Don't tell me that Emmy voters needed to notice popular shows. Ozark is, at least insofar as what we know from Netflix's ratings, an extremely popular show. It is a show that the weeks of its premieres and surrounding it, it was the number one streamed show on Netflix. It is also, in ideological terms, a lot closer to Yellowstone than a lot of people would want to say. You are talking about a a meat and potatoes show that without any question plays to uh The entire country plays to red and blue states with what the show is about and what it does. So those are all popular shows. Euphoria, you know, hard to know how popular Euphoria is, but I think we get the feeling that it's a popular show, especially in the streaming space and all of that. Better Call Saul, extremely popular, long running. Yellow Jackets, maybe it's a kind of small number, but it's definitely not a niche-critical show it's a it's a wild and crazy period piece that may involve cannibalism plane crashes mysteries come on and, anyone and
1: 90s music
2: yeah. and 90s music yeah that is that is not a marginal show of the shows in the drama category the only ones to me that feel like niche critical shows are, are Severance, which appears to have had a much wider audience than I would have guessed, and Awesome. And Succession, which has just kind of become a perennial, oh, that's the show that your your media elite blue check Twitters love, even though it's basically Yellowstone, only significantly, significantly better. And on the comedy front, they aren't marginal shows either. Abbott Elementary is a large broadcast hit. Um, only murders in the building stars two of the three amigos and Disney legend Lena Gomez. Ted Lasso is a you know populist popular sensation. So anyway, this is all, this is all about the, about people complaining that not nominating Yellowstone marginalizes uh, the Emmy voters' choices. The simple answer is no, no, it does not. This is not a snobby group of Emmy choices. This is a very very mainstream and available group of choices that also in many cases really and truly does reflect some of the best stuff on television, but is also missing a tremendous amount of of some of the better shows still looking at something like best comedy series. I will, you know, if I already started with saying where's Pachinko on the drama side, the the absence on the comedy side of Better things, the final season of Better Things is a huge miss to me. The absence of the first season of Reservation Dogs to me is a huge miss. Uh, the absence of the most recent season of Atlanta, which I understand why it, it left some people cold or some people confused. It to me is a miss. And so you, you like to put me on the spot and say, what things would I get rid of? And the answer, honestly, in the cases, case of those three shows, I just, said is almost anything from this category. It's, It's no offense to most of these shows to say I simply prefer Better Things, Reservation Dogs, and Atlanta to nearly everything in that category. Looking down that list, the only thing that I with that I without question would keep on there ahead of those three I just listed was Barry. Otherwise, I would substitute any of those three I just said for any of the others, with the clear starting place being either Curb Your Enthusiasm with yet another hit-and-miss season, though I think it was probably more hits than misses, and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is simply not so much overstate its welcome as just not, to me, in the conversation anymore. Okay, so that was a long, long, long ramble about drama series and comedy series. The end.
1: All right, well, XOXO. let's go to the biggest... <laughs> let's go to the biggest category... And that's limited series or anthology. You got dope sick, the dropout, inventing Anna, Pam and Tommy and the white lotus. Dan, this is, we have been talking about this all year about how competitive this category in particular was going to be given our current landscape in these limited and anthology series. I, I personally, I'm stunned to see Pam and Tommy get in there. And the same, you know, for inventing Anna. I mean, I'm again, I'm not a critic, but those were not. Great shows.
2: I think that Pam and Tommy was ultimately kind of underrated, honestly, uh, because I think and I just
1: talking about the talking penis.
2: No, because I'm talking about the fact that to me, the show became significantly more interesting after that to me. And I said this in my review and I, you know, on the podcast and my written review anywhere since. The show started off in a sensationalist place. And so the first couple episodes are all about, ooh, it's uh, latex nudity. Ooh, it's a, a talking penis voiced by Jason Manzukas. And then the last three or four episodes were when the show actually got into the serious consideration of the invasion of privacy of it all, of uh, exploring who Pamela Anderson was and making it clear that this was her story and making it clear that the story was about her victimization – even if that opened up conversations to, well, aren't you victimizing her as well? Because this is a show about her made with no uh, <laughs>
1: involvement with her whatsoever. <laughs> yes, with,
2: with no involvement. She did not benefit from this show in any way. Ergo, uh, is that not exploiting her as well? That's a totally fair question to ask. Let's have that conversation. Uh, so I, I'm I'm less bothered by that. I, to me, inventing Anna was, was such a mess. And... It was just such a mess. And that's what it was. There were, there were better options and there were better options of all a variety, big and small. So that could obviously, you know, to me, I was so a little So who else sus-
1: would you put, who else would you have nominated here?
2: Uh, the staircase would be certainly unanswered for something that I thought was better than, than a lot of these. And, and, and this all includes the fact that I didn't like dope at all that i thought dope sick was an extremely well-meaning but fairly badly made piece of television um it, you know obviously the message of dope sick is a important message and you know obviously it struck a chord with people maybe it struck a chord with people who hadn't had to watch as many hbo documentaries about the opioid epidemic as i have in the past five years so a lot of things that weren't the least bit revelatory felt revelatory, I guess. Uh, it's, but anyway, so I'm not, I don't begrudge that. Like you, you know, I knew that was coming. I know why people find it important. I know what I feel. So it's all fine. Um, yeah, the 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 inventing Anna of it all is is just a, a strange. Thing. I, I don't know what to say. Some of it has to do with the love for Shonda Rhimes. Some of it has to do with the love for Netflix. Some of it has to do the
1: money they spent campaigning
2: with the money they spent for campaigning. Some of it has to do with loving Julia Garner uh, so much that you nominate her for uh, lead actress in a movie miniseries anthology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, when Shonda Rhimes structured the entire series to very specifically not have Anna Delvey be the protagonist of the story. It, the, the story is about a reporter trying to get to the bottom of this mysterious story involving Anna Delvey. It is not Anna Delvey's story. Anna Chomsky is the lead actress in that series. Julia Gardner is a supporting actress in that series. But I've done that rant about 850 times. Uh, so yeah, it's, it is definitely though, it is, it is a powerful category and it is so striking the number of huge names got snubbed in that category. You know, it, it, looking at something like Gaslit on, on stars and seeing Sean Penn and Julia Roberts not get nominated, you know, that's certainly would not have happened five or 10 years ago. Those are, those are movie stars doing TV. No one cared. Uh, no one cared that Anne Hathaway and Jared Leto, Leto did that thing about We work. Uh, God, who else? Who are some other? There were a lot of big stars that were left out in the category and some of it has to do simply with the onslaught of television in the past two months there were just things that get got left out and then some of it has to do with the fact that there are whole categories where there are only two shows nominated in the entire category so the supporting actress in a movie miniseries category in which every single nominee is either from white lotus or Dopesick. It only upsets me because there were also great performances in things like, you know, not even like it's some sort of underdog show The the dropout had two or three actresses who deserve to be in that category. Laurie, Laurie Metcalf is so good in her couple scenes of of the dropout. Lisa Gay Hamilton has one of my favorite scenes of the entire year in one of her episodes of of the dropout. So there there were other things there. There's a lot of other stuff in those categories, but. And and
1: Laurie Metcalf did get nominated for her guest role in Hacks.
2: She did. It's and, worth, worth noting. And and as I said in the back and forth analysis that uh, Angie Hahn and I did on on Tuesday morning, it's not like anyone is really going to take a step back and go, oh, poor Laurie Metcalf, so underappreciated." And yet her stuff ranting about Star Wars with Amanda Seyfried on in the first or second episode of The Dropout is is truly so good and something that you put laurie metcalf in a show and you can give her five lines of dialogue and it suddenly becomes a dominant feature of the entire season but she was also hilarious on hacks so whatever it is we we respect and we honor laurie metcalf a lot so no worries there
1: well dan let's end this segment on a positive note um outside of Rhea Saharn, who were you really excited what nominees are made you really really happy to see
2: No, it's just, it's just Ray Sayhorn. That's, that's where I want to go. No, I, with, with Pachinko, it got shut out for the most part and I was very unhappy about it. But on the other hand, they did nominate the opening credit sequence. So there were a lot of things where I can sort of, where I can sort of go, man, I'm really ticked off that they didn't nominate dot, 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 but at least they nominated. Dot, dot, dot. That would be a prime example is if they hadn't nominated the opening credit sequence of Pach- uh, Pachenko, that would have been insane. But there are a lot of the sort of the obvious things where, you know, Melanie Linsky, I think it had become a a preordained thing thing that she was going to be nominated and that this was kind of the year of Melanie Linsky. And guess what? I have no objections to this being the year of Melanie Linsky, if that's what we, if that's what we want to do. So seeing uh, there are a lot of little things like that, where I was simply just very happy to see little bits of recognition. I talked about Sydney Sweeney. I'm, I'm happy with the double nomination there. Um, it's, it's really not a, it's not a bad Emmy nomination field, you know, there, there have been plenty of years where I've come away going, yeah, this is a total outrage. It's an embarrassment, whatever. And yet at the same time, I continue to think there are whole categories, fields, whatever that need to be redesigned. Uh, Thomas Jefferson famously wrote to James Madison that in order for the Constitution to be a, a living document, it should be rewritten from scratch every 19 years, because otherwise you're basically letting your country be governed by history and not by a modern document. Well, I mean, there are other applications for that particular policy and suggestions of things that maybe our founding fathers weren't really so prepared to deal with when they wrote the original Constitution, and maybe the Constitution shouldn't be taken as a carved-and-stone document— and that's a different conversation. This conversation is about the fact that the TV landscape doesn't look like what the TV landscape looked like when all of these Emmy categories were birthed. And I feel like maybe there are all of these conversations that Emmy, Emmy whatever people need to have where they go, okay... Are comedy and drama still reflecting what we want them to at this point? Is there something else we need to do there? Is anthology or limited series still doing what we want it to do? Do we still need a category for movie, if for original movie for television, if it's the Chip and Dale movie and like five things based on other TV shows? Um, you know, is this, is this the year we have the conversation about whether we still need gendered acting categories? I don't know what the answers are for a lot of these things, but I do think that just as our constitution could use some measure of reconsideration and adaptation to a modern world, the Emmy categories, someone could take a step back and go, okay, which of these are important? Which of these things can be overhauled? Uh, which of these things are just. Dan sitting alone in a corner, rocking back and forth, complaining about the same things every year. Not for me to say which of those, but yeah. (laughs) Number three. Transitioning, though, because I've rambled enough, it's time to talk about numbers. And if you were up on Emmy morning on Tuesday, you noticed, for example, that the Emmys this year, the TV Academy did not break things out by network for the first time. There's usually that big, vast list of, okay, well, HBO got this number, Netflix got this number, the CW got zero. It's normally the thing that you can count on. This year, it wasn't there. Fortunately, we have someone who awesomely broke things down by numbers on Tuesday morning. So, Leslie, from a numerical standpoint who are the actual winners and losers on tuesday morning
1: well let's just start with the shows and then we'll get into the inside baseball of it in a minute but in terms of by program these are numbers that the tv academy did break out succession led every bit, everyone with 25 followed by ted lasso and the white lotus with 20 apiece hacks and only murders in the building had 17 apiece, followed by Euphoria, Barry, Dope Severance, Squid Game, Ozark, Stranger Things, Maisel, and Pam and Tommy. Those are the, the shows that have 10 or more. So no surprise here that Succession is the top of that list. And Ted Lasso having, again, the same number of last, same number of nominations as last year with 20. Um, and as we get into the bi-platform stuff, and again, I've been doing this story Jeez, for a decade plus at this point. And this is the first time that the TV Academy has declined to break things out by platform. And of course, it's because last year the, the Academy took some heat, probably mostly from me, um, because <laughs> I thought it was absurd the way that they were counting these things because they accepted however these platforms submitted themselves. And in that last year's case, HBO and HBO Max, both overseen by the same executive, Casey Bloys, Submitted together. So their tally was they blew Netflix out of the water. Well, because you're counting original programming that was developed by HBO and original programming that was developed by HBO Max, which have two different development teams despite being overseen by the same single executive. So this year, the TV Academy is like, to hell with this. We're not getting involved in all of this stuff. You can count it however you guys want to count it. So that's what I did. So (laughs) HBO and HBO Max. Combined for 140. But what's interesting there is when you separate it out, HBO proper came out with 108. Netflix came in second with 105. So Netflix was down considerably from last year. HBO and HBO Max up 10 combined from last year and to lead with 140 overall. So in terms of rounding out the pack, no one else broke 100. And that's really the big marker. You know, look, this narrative has always been HBO and, and an example of HBO's dominance. And in this case, the narrative has become for the past couple of years, the emergence of Netflix and what happens when you spend billions of dollars and you throw hundreds of different programming things against the wall to see what stick. And you wind up with third in this case, in this year's case, Netflix had a larger number of programs to score Emmy nominations, 35 overall, compared with 18 for HBO and six for HBO Max. So, In my interview with Casey Boyce, he said something that that really struck home, and it's that the HBO and HBO Max shows have to work harder because unlike Netflix, they take, as John Landgraf says, a more curated approach to their content. They're not out there spending billions and billions of dollars and saying, we'll take three of these and one of those, and we'll try this over here, and we'll spend a, a few million bucks on this, and yeah, we'll cancel it three days after it comes out because no one watched it, but we'll take a chance on this and blah, 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 you know, but In this case, you're looking at the volume of shows that HBO and HBO Max have getting more nominations overall than the wealth of shows that Netflix has nominated. And that's not a new trend. That's always been the way the way that it has, because those are the different business models and approaches that they take to their creatives. So, yeah, that that's really the big story. And, you know, the other way that we've started breaking things down is by conglomerate, because, you know, as we talk about on this show a lot We, the consolidation that's been happening across the industry. We talked for the first couple years of our show about Disney's acquisition of Fox assets. The last, you know, the past year, we've talked so much about Warner Brothers Discovery. We talked about it in the, in headlines about TBS and the m- impact of getting out of scripted for those cable networks. And it's all about scaling up. So when you look at the nominations by conglomerate, you can actually see why a lot of these places are doing this, why, why the consolidation is, is paying off because, well, the newly merged Warner Brothers Discovery led all conglomerates with 155 total nominations. So that's, including Discovery Plus, Discovery Proper, CNN, everything, all of the Discovery assets, all of the Warner assets combined. So HBO, HBO Max, TNT, TBS, CNN, etc. And then you get into Disney, which had a very good showing down a little bit from last year, but they led the, the tallies among conglomerates last year with 146 this year came in second with 141 and that of course includes abc and hulu and fx and nat geo etc and some of these other companies paramount global had 75 that includes cbs paramount plus comedy central vh1 and then nbc universal came in last among all the conglomerates so in terms of the overall count Hulu was third with 58. Big showing for them this year, fueled by a lot of those limited series that you just talked about, Dan, followed by Apple TV Plus with 51, Disney Plus with 34, and Amazon with 30. So yeah, that's a lot going on and a lot to break down here because, well, there's a lot of math here. So the interesting thing is the TV Academy is saying we don't want to get into this. So you guys... Do the math we'll leave it to you to, to to scratch out and fight and go inside baseball and see who who really deserves the bragging rights and why so that's what's going on from the Emmys by the numbers
2: and I'm still intrigued because a lot of what you talked about there um, are you know obviously the big players doing what the big players do, uh, but I was interested in just how many nominations all of the big players actually left on the table. So, you know, HBO, HBO Max, Warner Brothers had such a great day. And yet. And
1: that tally doesn't include the nominations for, for Warner Brothers for shows that are produced by Warner Brothers, for example. So a show like Ted Lasso gets counted for Apple, but Warner Brothers is the lead studio on that. They counted the 20 nominations that Ted Lasso got under under the studio tally so i didn't break that down this year because it's more <laughs> interesting to do to look at the, the conglomerates and everything else but yeah that's it, it's a very very interesting point dan
2: but what I'm, but what i'm looking at is the number of things that didn't hit for hbo on a day that was so great for hbo like the staircase i mentioned earlier but ultimately yeah, it only acting
1: got, nominations but not a series nomination
2: yeah. uh winning time Certainly yeah, could have been a player. Yeah. yeah, one one technical nomination for winning. Julia, time.
1: I think, was a big one.
2: Julia got shut out, I Minx. believe.
1: I think Minx aired the, within the
2: window, yeah, right? Minx, Minx absolutely was shut out. I thought
1: Jake Johnson had a chance.
2: Uh, he could, he could have been a player. Uh, Julia. I mean, the fact that Sarah Lancashire wasn't nominated or David Hyde Pierce is a surprise. I think probably some people were confused why it was a comedy, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, and we can we had, and we can get into the snubs here too. This is Us, the final season. Nothing for Mandy Moore. I think the show only got one nomination, and it was for an original song. Nothing. I think maybe one technical nomination for the final season of Blackish, which is a perennial Emmy favorite.
2: Yeah, definitely there. Definitely there are things that are snubs. So, so those are sort of the HBO snubs. On Apple TV, had one of the best mornings in Apple TV history, and that was while Pachinko got only one nomination, while uh, the aftermath shining girls slow horses all the of aftermath those, what's that that's the uh the the part the party thing with with the the murderer and isn't it
1: called the after part it's at, not called the after, after, party, it- after party after party yes
2: not aftermath see that's because everyone voted for the aftermath and not after party and that's why it got <laughs> snubbed uh it's so, it's kind of amazing that these conversations don't happen more often on our show today. oh because there are too many shows, and too many of them have titles that are too similar. Anyway, though, so yeah, so Apple TV left a lot of nominations on the table for things that could have been more nominated.
1: And you mentioned somebody somewhere for HBO.
2: Yeah, somebody somewhere could have certainly Bridget gotten, Everett. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and yeah, so the, and I and again, going back to the original movie thing, I feel as if Netflix. Amazon and Hulu all left nominations on the table by not deciding, okay, here are our five original movies we're putting up for Oscar contention, and then here are five movies we're putting up for Emmy contention. It's completely arbitrary, but... Why not go for those awards, you know? So Power of the Dog can be your big Oscar play, but maybe you decide a different movie is your big Emmy play. It's all just semantics anyway. Why not get as many trophies as possible? And if you go back and look, Netflix definitely had movies that were Netflix originals that weren't Oscar players last year that they thought could have been. Take one or two of those and say, "Yeah, this for whatever reason we're treating this as a as a TV movie." I, I mean, Emmy <laughs> Emmy trophies are just as shiny as Oscar trophies if you're looking at them from across a lobby. So yeah,
1: I yeah. mean, I think you're, what you're getting at is here that I mean, you haven't mentioned is the fact that Chippendale Rescue Rangers is nominated for Best Television Movie,
2: and people loved that little movie. It's just sort of crazy that it's a Emmy nominee. I mean, look, do I give that movie full credit for being better than it had any right to be? A hundred percent. That is a better TV movie than it had any right or justification for being. And kudos to all involved. But it still does point to a category that is not necessarily being fully invested in. By everybody, hence nominations for a Reno 911 movie or the always Extraordinary playlist thing on Roku channel, which got a few nominations as well. Anyway, there's lots, there's lots and lots and lots of Emmy talk. We could do an entire podcast on this and then a podcast next week on Emmy talk and just nonstop Emmy talk. Or at some point we can just stop talking about the Emmys.
1: Yeah and you can read more for on Dan and Angie's conversation as well as the by the numbers and so many more interviews and analysis over on thr.com. Up next it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Joining us this week is Bisha K. Ali, the head writer of Marvel's newest Disney Plus series, Miss Marvel. This is Ali's second show for Marvel as she previously was a writer on Loki. Her credits also include Hulu's Four Weddings and a Funeral Update, as well as HBO Max's The Baby and Netflix's Sex
2: Education. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. We appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's
0: my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's so weird that I get to be on it now, having listened to it so
1: much. But so, yeah, huh. it's great. Thank you. Well,
2: we are, we are happy to have you.
1: Yeah, so, thanks for being a friend of the five.
2: So first off, we are going to be talking at least somewhat about the finale of Miss Marvel, so everyone should keep that in mind. And if you haven't watched episode six yet, you should definitely do that. So uh, that consider this your spoiler warning. So... As we get to the end of things in episode six, it it feels a little bit like filling up a rental car with gas before you drop it off, where you have to make sure that you've sort of left things in a place to go do other things. At what point did you know where you needed the main character here's development to be when you handed off the rent-a-car to whoever's next?
1: Right, because, of course, this feeds right into the
0: Marvels. Precisely. Um, and also just, just as I was hearing you say, what a deeply American analogy. I love that. Um, the, 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 the thing that I knew going into this was always that she was going to go off and be in the Marvels, whatever the Marvels may be. Um, and <laughs> what I took away from that and from a character perspective was she has to be much ready to be able to run alongside whoever she's going to be run, running alongside in that movie. I mean, we all know that the answer to that is Captain Marvel. But I knew that piece going in. So in terms of character development, from where I knew I was starting, or where I, I certainly where I wanted to start with this show, was that I knew she was going to be a teenage girl, sans powers, she's not powered up at all, with this kind of um, a hero worship of, uh, I'll try not to use that phrase, but with this, re- with this obsession with Captain Marvel right from the start. She gets powers, and that's the journey of getting her from there. No powers set at all and kind of at the beginning of this emotional maturity that we kind of want this journey to express to the point of where episode six by the end of it we have to believably buy that she can be running alongside Captain Marvel um and that that piece kind of was really clear to me that arc of where she's starting and where she's headed which is kind of so good with television when you do know where that character journey has to end my god thank god we weren't reaching for what that answer was um because I've been in that situation before it's a different kettle of fish um and so I was really aware of that. In terms of kind of the specifics of she is introducing this new element to the MCU, that kind of, that kind of thing kind of morphs and changes as you go um, and isn't as relevant in kind of the the thing that's most important to me, which is the emotional core of what <laughs> what we're about to go through. And it's still really exciting that we're introducing this new idea in the MCU at the end of it. And the kind of the post-credits scene at the end of episode six is we're by no means building to that. I think the important takeaway for me is that um we, they don't ever meet in this show. They never meet these two characters and that's saved for whatever's next. And that's uh, that really was important for the character
1: journey that I wanted to take Kamala on. So I'm really happy that it worked out the way that it did. You know, and speaking of the finale, this is also the first time that the MCU mentions the word mutants and connects directly to X-Men. Obviously, you hear the music there. But how long have you known that this was going to happen? And what level of secrecy did you guys have to go to to protect that from getting out? (laughs) Um, In terms of the secrecy, I mean, it's all equally as secrecy-ified.
0: So I wouldn't be able to spill the beans on that any more than I'd be able to spill the beans on any of the construction of this show up until today up until yesterday i don't know what day it is anymore um up until wednesday of july week three um the, the 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 secrecy around all of the 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 mutation of it all um kind of came quite far down the line in terms of putting that scene in came in additional it didn't it wasn't in the kind of the first round it wasn't in the first draft of the script by any means and that came as we were building towards and um, building towards the finale and kind of figuring out some of the logic pieces that I was still struggling with and felt like oh we've got a great solution but I don't think it's good enough and connecting up to the rest of the MCU and it kind of felt like this shiny delicious treat that we were given that oh you can introduce. Mutation and that was really exciting to us. And so that came quite far down the line, and also helped solve some of my problems <laughs> along along the way
2: too. Well, I want to hear a little bit more about that. How does the conversation go where someone says, "Oh, by the way, this is a this is a tool you get to play with or introduce?"
1: And was that did that come directly from Kevin? Yeah. So
0: Sana Manat, who's one of our producers on the show, um, it was something that because all these scripts were already in place before kind of Sana joined the project, but um, that was a puzzle piece in terms of if she's... Because what was really important for us in this character journey was that this is inherited and that it's about this matrilineal line and it's about both character-wise and power-wise. And the thing that I was like... But why doesn't her mother have, if her mother put on the bangle, would she also be unlocked? If her grandmother put on the bangle, would she also be unlocked? And kind of this solution, like you have a mutation and that's why you're the one, even within your own family, kind of answered that piece. And we we're trying to answer that piece in so many other ways. And at the beginning, certainly there was kind of whisperings in the rise and was like, man, what have we got to do that? What have we got to make her, because it would solve our problem, but it seems so beyond the realm of our reality. Like even as a bunch of nerds sitting in um, Marvel headquarters, we're like, like that's that's impossible. I'm like, guys there are already a bunch of Pakistanis in one room at, at on the Disney lot. Like, don't nothing's impossible. So <laughs> um, there was kind of this this kind of rumbling of it, and then honestly so far down the line when um Sana kind of brought up again and then Sana took it to Kevin and Kevin was like yeah okay <laughs> that kind of that sounds good and I think also they um and this is me speculating I can't say anything for the inside of the any workings of either that man's mind nor the rest of the MCU as a whole but um they are aware of what their big plan is so whether something changed along the way in that journey or whether it was just that it was presented to them at that, the right time um I'm not really sure how that worked out magically
1: but my goodness I'm happy that it did. <laughs> I, I was. I'm fascinated by how how this all came together and how it was just this magical yes, um, which I obviously we know from an industry perspective was years in the making. But knowing what you know now about how this ended and and obviously the X Men connection of it all have and how this connects into uh, into the Marvels. Will there be a second season? And is that something that, that you'll further explore? I mean, have you are you ready to kind of sink your teeth in, into that mutation storyline? and revisit the, the all of these characters. I mean, this was such a fabulous show.
0: Oh, thank you, Leslie. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you just said that. I'm so happy. Um, great.
1: Sorry, I'll get over my fangirling of you in a second. Um, the, um, <laughs> I'm going to fangirl was- for you because this was like... <laughs> I, this was the Marvel show that I I absolutely enjoyed the most, and you know I, I always tease my my wife and my my best friend who's a diehard Marvel nerd, and all I say all the time just to mess with them is what's a Ragnarok? So if that tells you anything <laughs> about me and Adore. how much you know like this this to me it, how it just, deeply disinterested you are in this universe I completely <laughs> I just, understand I just can't, I just can't I keep it. up you know what I mean It's like introducing the world of ba- uh, you know the hundred plus world of years of baseball to someone who's never watched the game before To me you know what I mean Yeah
0: I get it We can cross we can cross worlds together I get it. Um, I like it. Uh, okay, there you go. I think um, it's really gratifying for me to hear that from someone like you who hasn't got as much passion for the Marvel necessarily as a whole. Um, because I wanted this to reach a really huge audience and I wanted this to feel universal in terms of storytelling and that you don't have to understand everything and if you do in terms of the marvel elements and if you do great additional juice for you and you can see that it's a love letter for fans but also there is a very pure emotionally eviscerate like there's honestly there's like this emotional evisceration happening to the writers in the room as we were constructing this um that feels like we were telling a story that was important and that could reach a huge audience so hearing that from you is very gratifying um And I forgot the thread that I was on before, but I'm sure we'll loop our way back to it.
1: I was talking about season two, because, you know, this is such a a vibrant world that we want to return to. And obviously you set up the movie that's coming. But have you talked to Kevin or any of the Marvel executives about what comes after the movie and if there's room for a second season here?
0: I have not. And if they're thinking about it, they certainly haven't told me. (laughs) I think uh, um, I will say that for my part, I love this character. I love kind of so much of what I've learnt. Um, you know, I, I worked on Miss Marvel and before that I worked on Loki and I spent a lot of time in that world. Um, and this story, this very specific story that we told in season one of Miss Marvel or season one or the only season, honestly, I don't know the answer if there's going to be more. I think that it might be the end of my chapter with... This character um, for now. Maybe I'll come back and contribute to this story in another way in the future. And hopefully, maybe one of the writers in the writers' room that really excited them and they'd maybe carry on. This is really a show for the community and was built by a community of creatives. And I'm really proud of this story and this arc and what I got to tell and how personal it is to me. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I mean the art my answer could change in like a week, but right now for me, I'm like, this is what I wanted to do, this is what I set out to do. Like you know good luck to the next person and that's kind of where i'm at in terms of me creatively as Bisha. Um, in terms of the potential for this show there is so much potential for the show because this world that we've built is there's just so many brilliant characters we love spending time with them they're funny they're sweet we're with them when they're in dramatic moments too so i think there's definitely so much scope for multiple seasons of this show um, and i really hope that they'll pursue that but to my knowledge i haven't heard i haven't heard anything about it
2: well, hearing about the idea of mutation as a concept here, uh, Kamala, her response is, oh, it's just going to be another label. And I thought that was an interesting response because the the theme of the entire six episode season really is about defying labels and not necessarily being bound in by labels. So that means that at the same time, you have to try to find a way to keep true to that theme but also make the mutation label sound significant. So what are the challenges to balancing those two things?
0: I mean, there are a great deal of challenges for exactly that reason, in that it's inherently antithetical to what we've been talking about throughout season one. Um, so I guess the challenge is <laughs> good luck to whoever's going to have to deal with that. <laughs> That's what I've got to say. <laughs> Indeed, Godspeed. <laughs> um, no, I think, I think going forward, I think it's about... Um, I think there's loads of potential. I mean, I'm just pitching in real time how I might approach it going forward if it was me. Um, is looking at ways in which you can reclaim the idea of what a label is, or what it is to build a community. So if if it's a label and saying that we don't have to label ourselves as individuals, we're a community together. What is? How do we name our community? How do we find space for each other? How does our community have an identity that can change and morph for everybody's needs? Maybe I'd be looking into that. And when I think about X Men as a whole, and this is not me necessarily making the connection because who knows? But if with the X-Men of it all, there is so much about community. This is this community of people who are um, overtly marginalised by the people around them in terms of what we've seen historically of X-Men. And yes, there's community division, but they come together in these factions of like, we've got to look out for each other, we've got to protect each other. And that's exactly what Kamala did with her community at the end of, in our finale. So there's parallels. Some will figure it out, I'm sure. <laughs>
2: Excellent. So, OK, you mentioned earlier that you uh, that you worked on Loki. So you had experience within this world. Now, I, I find it interesting that when WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldiers started this Disney plus Marvel Universe, there wasn't a lot of writing institutional knowledge. So it was a lot of people who didn't necessarily know what things were or what they could be. But you worked on Loki. You had writers from Moon Knight and from What If on your staff. How does it change the writer's room to have people who have these experiences within this very unique world?
0: Yeah, so the What If writers came on later down the line and went actually in the writer's room. And in terms of the Moon Knight, the, this is kind of because of the way things played out. Saber was my hire and then went on to work on Moon Knight, <laughs> just that the shows came out in a different order. So actually, we didn't have many writers in the room who'd worked on Marvel projects at all. I was the only one. Um, so in the actual writer's room, that that phase of the creative process um, we didn't necessarily have that. I was the one who was like, okay, I've been on Loki. I've seen how we've just done that, that piece of storytelling. Um, and what can I learn from that that will A, um, do the kind of dual work that is, I think, any inherent creative. and i mean this in a positive way like the creative friction that takes place with um dueling needs for what how this show is going to fit into this larger universe of storytelling and also what do we in this room want to say like that i'm really driven by that of if we're going to make something that's a story whether it's in the marvel universe or otherwise we gotta fucking say something (laughs) that's really important and otherwise i don't know why i'm doing this job and i mean that not in marvel i mean in the universe of life so um Kind of balancing those two things, like what do we say while working for a mega corporation? That is a skill set that I was able to kind of figure out and piece together effectively. I think because of my work working on Loki and being like, what are the, how do these pieces fit together? How do we um, make sure that our vision stays within it? I think Waldron was successful in that, and I think hopefully that's really clear in Miss Marvel as well. That we rise really wanted to say something with this, and it's that's what makes this show special. I think. Um, so I think that, that was really helpful to learn. I also think. Um, in terms of having been there already on Loki, because what was happening in that building was the Loki writer's room was kind of um in one conference room and then across the hall was the Falcon the Winter Soldier writers' room. I think there's like a few weeks kind of delay between all of us and then there's another room over here that was the um gosh, what was the other one that came Oh Wonder Vision was next door to us. My goodness, I was always trying to listen, I know in the other room. But um as a result of that, there was so much kind of um we were all the first round of writers' rooms taking place the Marvel Studios has done for television. So there's a little bit of like this spicy energy going around Um, and as a result I kind of got to build a relationship with Jack Schaefer who was on WandaVision um, and some of the other writers too and since then also building a relationship with Jessica Gao who's the head writer on She-Hulk and Malcolm Spellman reached out to me when I got the job on Miss Marvel so that kind of cross-pollination of like advice and also um, you know my experience level certainly in the US compared to theirs is very different and that mentorship for me was so helpful so I think part of me being around in that first phase of television also kind of got me familiar with everything got me familiar with the process and also meant that I could connect with these people who would really help me through <laughs> help me through um, creating this show
1: you know on, and on the other side of the coin there how important was it to you to make sure that you also re- found some voices who had never been allowed into a room like this so
0: important. I think we so rarely got to see, work with each other. We always uh, the kind of writers that we put into this writers' room are the kind of writers who are often the only one of them, one of one of us in a writers' room. Whereas we get to all be sitting in a room across from each other, um, and a lot of us, some of us, had never experienced that before. I'm really lucky when I worked on Sex Education with a redeveloped writers' room, for example. When I worked on Four Weddings in a Funeral, again a redeveloped writers' room, and then in my room, I really wanted to make sure that I was doing similar. Um So the fact that we all get to be in a room together and be able to, and it was vital to the story we wanted to tell, right? We can't be doing a show that's going all the way to partition if we ha- don't have people in the room who that means something to, as much as it means to me, and that it felt deeply moving and like we we're doing an excavation of self in order to talk about it. If we're not doing it that way, I don't want to do it. So that was really vital to me that those are the kinds of writers who could share that experience. and have like... V- very very different experiences of that but also kind of three levels above that the kind of the entry point is that very different muslim american experiences very different international experiences very different pakistani american experiences all those elements were so important to kind of get everything just the way we wanted it in this kind of celebratory tone that we have throughout the show
2: There, there are parts of the specifics to this story that I imagine are sort of easy and organic to pitch to the, the Marvel and Disney plus people. But I I have to imagine that there are other parts that are extremely difficult to pitch where you have to actually lay down a lot of explanations a lot of ground rules a lot of justifications people might fight back to you i'm curious specifically about the partition of it all because that is such an important part of this season and it could just as easily have not been but it was something you obviously wanted there what was the initial this is a a thing i have to include in this story are you going to let me include that thing in the story conversation
0: yeah so i think um because of my lucky experience I kind of knew how to I kind of knew how to put my in the way in the true Kamala style I had a plan of attack going in whether or not it would be successful well it worked out in the end maybe not in the way that I planned in the first place but um so one of the things we did is we were talking about the emotionality of it and what the character arc is and it made perfect sense to us it didn't wasn't hard for me to figure that out and how to express that really concisely and clearly and I don't think that was this not particularly hard to question that I, Certainly the way that it was presented. I think the way that we contextualized it within the MCU and within what we were trying to do with the show on a kind of broader scale was kind of the the turning the screws on why this is such a tight idea, why we have to do it. So, for example, at one point, um, all the writers got together and bearing in mind, we're a bunch of nerds, all of us collectively, and we built up a timeline of things that we've seen um, Canonised on screen about real world history in the MCU, so things for example like Captain America, the, the essentially the period movie that they made of Captain America, um, and we're looking at World War Two there. That's nineteen. That end, world War II ends in nineteen forty five. I think he goes into the ice either during or not long after. I can't remember precisely in this in real time for you guys, but um, in nineteen forty seven is when partition happened, and part of kind of, I mean, this is historical kind of part of the build-up towards partition as well, and kind of this uh, desire for freedom from colonialism um, was that people came, people from India were coming back from fighting in World War II, coming back and then being treated so incredibly poorly after they've put their lives on the line, fighting alongside everybody. So there's this element of like, we need this, we need, we need sovereignty back in some capacity. And that all plays into this, the part of the history. Anyway, I didn't go into that this level of granular detail. But the idea was, here we have on the board, where's Captain America at that time? what part of history is important if this is a global franchise if this is a story that includes people from all around the world and that plays to people all around the world then surely we can canonize other bits of history as well that are deeply entwined with the history that you've already put on screen and kind of made a part of the public imagination so that was once I kind of laid out how it fit into the MCU in those terms like well where was Kamala's family in 1945 what was happening for them in 1947 I think then that idea of like expanding our idea of what the media landscape includes in when we're talking about global media. I think that really helped in terms of the macro picture in terms of the micro picture and the emotions of it. When I explained that I wasn't really keen on chasing this idea of um, what it is to be a marginalized person in the West in terms of the minutia of I don't fit into high school because I'm Muslim or because I'm um, from a Pakistani background. I wasn't really chasing that. I wasn't really chasing that us versus them narrative. I really was chasing what's us because them, yeah, sure, they've marginalised us plenty. Cool. And there are brilliant, brilliant, brilliant versions of that story that already exist. And that's great. I love them. They should exist. For me, for what I wanted to do, was I don't really, I don't really give a shit about them. I really want to think about what us is. And I want to go deeper and deeper and deeper into that. And what us is, It means, who am I in us? What is our community? Who are my people? Where am I from? What's happened? What are the things that we don't talk about? And I think that was the chase that I was on, of like, what is it when we're talking about us in the us versus them? Because when you put things up against each other, you're focused on the other. You're not really focused on what is the truth of you. So... That's really what we were chasing. And again, I was much more concise than what I've been with you guys. And that's, the emotional arc felt really clear to them and how passionate I was about it, I think, was really clear to them as well. And they were like, Kev, I have to say, Kevin Feige was like, this sounds great. How are you going to do it? And then I was like, cool, I'm going to go break it with the room. So <laughs> that, was, that was kind of how that, yes, came
2: about. It's, it's just such an interesting thing. And it is something that you guys were so obviously dedicated to. How did you determine how much partition this six episode season could actually hold because that i just wasn't sure if from the initial episode for example if it was gonna be something that was gonna be mentioned and sort of backstory but not dived into i guess and then you guys dove into it
0: yeah so part of what we were talking about is um, if we're going to approach it we're not approaching it for the sake of putting it on screen we're approaching it because we want to talk about it as a point of healing and I know I'm a very earnest person so you're going to get a lot of this in this conversation but we're approaching it from this place of if we're going there if we're going to like touch this wound and it is a wound because it's so much more complex and violent and horrific than we we're able to express in this show um, and then we're I mean able as in our capabilities as artists and also um, what the nature of a television show like this is that we were really aware that when she does go there, she's not doing super heroic. She's not saving everyone in partition. That is not what we're doing. We've approached this with such, um, we're, such we're really trying to honour this and we're approaching this from a place of uh, she's bearing witness. And sometimes I think the start of healing something, of being able to talk about it she's I mean her powers are literally about bringing light to things um is being able to bear witness to what's happened to her own family and the truth of it and then because of her ability to do that and yes she has a role in saving her grandmother and finishing that loop um because she's bearing witness to it she's able to bear witness to her own parents in a new way and they're able to bear witness to her too and it's the start of that healing of this intergenerational trauma that really it ripples through it, it really just ripples through us and I think I've, we've me and Fatima Asgur who's one of our writers she especially has spent so much time working on partition working in the art of it for so long and cons- just understanding it for, in so many different ways so we we're having these conversations that were incredibly personal incredibly vulnerable and I'm so grateful to all the writers who were willing to go there to this place with me um and that was really clear to us that we we're going to get to that point. We couldn't spend like a whole episode in Partition because then we're, 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 we're I just, this isn't the show for that. This isn't, we're not making a documentary. We're tracking this one family. We're giving you the scale and the scope and the emotional impact of, oh my goodness, this is where we are and this is huge. And it's so huge that it's unfathomable. But what you can fathom, what you can understand is and have so much empathy for is this one family and how it's rippled through the generations of this one family that we've fallen in love with over the past four episodes. So this is very much always what we were aiming for. You're going to have to cut me off, guys. I will just keep going. <laughs> no, oh, this we're, is fantastic.
2: <laughs> exactly. We're, we're enjoying this. And so, uh, like, you bring up an interesting point because there's always, when you're dealing with history, there's always going to be... The conversation, why did Wonder Woman not stop the Holocaust? You know that kind of that kind of question that really does get brought in when you have someone who's superpowered who existed in in the midst of real horror um and and you didn't feel the need to sort of engage with that. you're like, okay, this is these are separate things. we can't blend them
0: yeah i deeply I felt very averse to that <laughs> felt very averse to kind of even entertaining that um and I felt really that um. The only actual, we talk about violence, the only actual violence we see on this is kind of our constructed violence between Najma and Aisha. And if that acts for an emotional um, touch point of like the impact and the grief and the horror of some of that, great. But it's, we were never going to be able to show All those pieces, and the idea of like a superhero who's like a second-generation American going to partition. Oh, yikes! I'm not. I'm not waiting into all of that. Why isn't she stopping partition? We're not. That's not the business of this whatsoever. And was never. It's not it's not in my heart to write something like that um so the, the that was never something that we were chasing and we were very careful about how we were delineating where the fantasy is and where the what the reality is and what's true and I think that comes across really clearly even in just how we use colour palettes in how we shot that and I think the other piece is we brought Sharmin Obeid Chinoy on to direct episodes 4 and 5 firstly she's Pakistani so she it was really important for episode 4 that she's bringing that lens of someone who loves this city of Karachi and is going to make it like feel exciting and vibrant and enjoy, like oh I want to go there um which is something we never get to see, but also that when we got to the partition, she also has spent so much of her career focusing on stories from partition and collecting them. She's collected oral history. She set up one of the only museums that exists in the world It's a partition museum, collecting so many of these stories over the last, decade plus so I was so thrilled when we got her on board to direct this episode because or these two episodes because that scene when she's walking down the platform at the end of four when she's hearing those snippets of conversations and kind of what you're actually seeing on that platform those are recreations from photographs and from um audio that Charmaine's collected so we really were honoring this as much as possible and we wanted that to hit home that this is a real thing that happened and we're approaching it from a place of like tenderness but we feel like it's so important that we want to share it with everyone
2: and you mentioned this isn't a documentary, but her background is in documentary. So it sort of it gets it lets you have both of those two things at the same time. I mean, you know, in addition to all, all of these
1: amazing ways that you honored history here, was there anything that really stands out that was that you were extremely happy that you got to sneak into the show, whether or this was something Disney realized that you and Disney and Marvel realized that you did or not?
0: Um, in terms of the history of it all or in terms of kind of more generally?
1: Oh, well, both.
2: History, um, culture. More generally
0: anything i mean loads of stuff like for there's so many small little things that i think well, like yeah sure do it because no one's checking <laughs> um in terms <laughs> no one's like the no one's going to be the muslim police on this show right so the the thing that's that i've thought was really um small details along the way that are really personal to me bisha is like my mum's a huge bon jovi fan it's perfect that they're from jersey city like that was really great so that's like my little love letter to my mum um and then i think the other some of the other things like um at the wedding in episode Three, um, some of the ceremonies that you see are, are so the big ceremony you see in the mosque when they're saying their I do's, um, the nikah. that's where we're seeing um, something that's really common. I love the fact that you're having him saying takbir and everybody saying Allahu Akbar back. We When do we get to see Muslims say Allahu Akbar on screen and it not be threatening and instead be joyful? like. Come on, guys! That that was cool. <laughs> so I was really pleased that that moment came through. I can't tell how much of an impact people, some of some people. I mean, loads of the Muslims on 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 the show were like, "Oh my god, I can't believe we get to do this!" But I think those are the things that kind of just felt organic in the scripts and then showing it was yeah it just felt really exciting to see it and then the another piece that was excited is so the, later on in the wedding scene before before the baddies arrive um there's a scene where they are knocking the heads of the bride and groom together and that is a like a we call it a ratham so like a a piece of kind of a ceremonial or a ritual act that's kind of not religious it's cultural um but that one in particular is so specific that it's kind of it's not a muslim thing necessarily nor is it specifically a pakistani general thing it's like literally from the county i'm from in pakistan so the level of like specificity on like that was just like a special thing that felt important like if for Sindhi people do that loads of people like what is that why would you do that but i excited i got to be able to put little details like that and the shoe thief in the mosque is like a, such a specific detail that genuinely universally collects connect so many muslim communities there's always a shoe thief um and also the idea that um the younger brother playing a prank on Amir, taisha's younger brother where he's stealing all of his shoes the tradition of um that kind of game you play it's like a wedding party game where you try and st- you steal the groom's shoes and he has to pay you to get the shoes back and you're trying to drive the price up like there was a much longer sequence of that but the fact that we kept it So there's just a million a million billion small things in this that are very personal but also because so many people from a similar background will be like yep i know exactly what that is Felt like we were having conversations on so many different levels with different
1: audience groups. So that was really exciting. You know, and, and in that vein, is there anything that you had to to trim for time or space that, that didn't make it in that you uh maybe couldn't release on Twitter or something like that?
0: <laughs> I would say that it um the things that got trimmed were kind of actually larger chunks of arcs that um had to be removed because I've I've mentioned this before, but no one had heard the word COVID by the time we'd written all six episodes. So everything changed quite a bit between that and learning what a new production process is going to be like, because I think that happened in the middle of Loki being shot. And then ours hadn't even, we hadn't even hired directors yet when kind of, covid had really kicked off so we're like uh what's happening um so everything was changing in real time so when we wrote them we had we really had six hours <laughs> of script uh, ready to go so one of the big storylines that went was a storyline about gentrification there was a community center and maniba's kind of fighting to keep this community center alongside nakia and so you have this parallel between um kamala looking at captain marvel who's a superhero in episode one but also her mum's kind of kind of heroing in her own community and she can't make that connection it's how she can kind of that kind of all comes together so that whole arc around gentrification got lifted and the community center kind of died a quick death um there was a competitive theater element at the high school once i heard about what competitive theater is i lost my mind i thought this is the funniest thing i've ever heard we have to put this in um but again there just wasn't the space for all these threads competitive theater is bananas like they like have time limits and like are racing to compete with theatre, like building sets, putting on the show, collapse what? And it was so funny to me that that's a real thing. um and in sounds the like a show way, in love and of it. itself. Yeah, that's the problem. I'm always, I mean, you can tell from talking to me, I'm like, here's a thousand things that I think are cool. Um, so that, I think with competitive theatre, to be fair, rightfully removed from the show. Um, <laughs> and there was a lot more with the clandestines and with the red daggers of, of it all. There is so much more, like we wrote textbooks of, Every single character's life story and how they all interweaved, and how that pa- the family the clandestines are put together, and how that was a kind of a juxtaposition against Kamala's family, and looking at those differences helped to see more in her own family. So that parallel, a lot of that got lost, I think, um, as a result of kind of
1: you got to do what you got to do, um, and I, I miss I miss some of that. Yeah. So, so with so much research that you guys have already done about the clandestines and the, and the red daggers, you know, is there a, p- a possibility for a spinoff here? Wow, I'd love a Red Dagger spin-off. I mean, clandestines
0: are kind of like in the wind now. Um, I'd certainly love a Red Dagger spin-off, I think. Certainly one of our writers, that he I'd really like to make sure the writers feel like there's something that they i just love working with writers so much they're just really passionate about it. and i think everyone had their own thing they were so like huss and i and aisha's love story was so fatima and red dagger was so um was so so so, so sabir pierzada who went on to write on moon Knight and then freddie cyborn was such a champion for bruno and he i worked with freddie on sex education i was like come help um, I dragged him over here so uh the 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 red dagger of it all man i would love for there to be a red dagger spin-off because it's an all we've made it from the comics it was just one character we've made it into the order of the red daggers and yeah it's it's a really fun world and i think it's full of like like cute boys doing parkour let's go let's do it
2: (laughs) (laughs) i I want to talk a little bit more about the religious aspect of it because religion has only has generally had a a pretty small role in the filmed marvel universe you know like moonlight night for example almost completely erased that character's jewish backstory and there just wasn't room for it What were the big questions that you found yourself both asking and getting to ask when you bring a real world religion into a cinematic universe in which there are all powerful aliens, in which there are literal gods who sometimes pop up down on Earth to help save the day? How do you ground an actual spiritual and religious practice within that world?
0: Great question. How did I do that? Um, I, think the, I, think the key, I think the key thing to pay attention to for us was always, how can we pull this down to how it affects her day-to-day life, how it's integrated into her day-to-day life? She, she's a teenage girl. She's not having like long conversations about the nature of faith in the way that maybe us ones who are kind of i don't know i'm i'm very young but i'm still looking down the barrel like oh what's going to happen when it all ends and when (laughs) will that time come please um so there's i mean a very nihilistic energy today um but the, the teenage girl and there's a sense of like um how is it integrated into day to day life? What part ways in the, of the Muslim community is she engaged in? Unless we don't overtly talk about faith a great deal, there's some references. There's we're talking about how the Muslim community is treated, we're talking about how they are perceived and how they perceive themselves. And we're actively part of shifting that perception kind of on a meta level of what we're doing. But, um, the thing that was important was she's not a superhero because she's Muslim, like those two things, we're not connecting those things up in any way. Um, and we're not saying that her faith is what makes her a superhero. Her faith is a part of her, and is part of her day to day life and her culture, and like what she gets up to when she wakes up, and is part of her day. Um, it guides, uh, gives her a moral compass as well, the one that she's inherited from her family as well as from that wider community. Um, but where I would go out of my way to not connect up religion and the superheroics of it all i think in terms of the practicalities because for many reasons that you can imagine And i think one thing that was really important to show in this show in in our show is there are so many different types of muslims and like there's so many denominations for lack of a better term within that so we're not getting into the this is the true i'm I'm not the FBI. I'm not here to police Muslims. So I'm not looking at things and saying, this is how, what's a good Muslim? What's a bad Muslim? We we're really, all of us are so allergic to that. And I think there are writers in the room where, who come, approach religion from completely different places too. Certainly I do from all the other writers and there's so much individuality in how we all approach it as well. And that was really a help because sometimes when there's something that we we're looking at, they were like, oh, is this a bit spicy? Should we be careful around this? We'd kind of go around the room and everyone would give their take. And sometimes it would pull in such different directions i was like okay if i can satisfy these two who are sitting on opposite ends of the spectrum on this if i can find a way through that's going to be that's that's the way i should go it's finding a way through that satisfies both of these people who actually approach from completely different ends so that was really the value of having people who are yes who share a similar background but there's so much like diversity within within what it means to be a pakistani american muslim too um so that's how i navigated a lot of it is in this nexus that we have in this writers room of vastly different approaches on some of these issues, how do we like thread in between and make sure everybody feels okay with this? And then part of the job of that for me is making the space feel like they can speak up and say, no, I have a problem with this. And it doesn't, there's no blowback on that. It's like, I need you to tell me so that we can do this well and we can like really respect all of it. So it's really, it's exciting. I don't know how often you get to be in a situation like that. And it was, yeah, it's such a thrill to be able to do that.
2: How often would you get to the end of the day in the writer's room and go, oops, we had an entire day and we didn't talk about anything relating to superpowers at all?
0: i don't know if i should answer that um <laughs> <laughs> i think <laughs> i don't know i don't know <laughs> pretty often um i think that superpowers are important no stop it guys you're gonna get me <laughs> in so much trouble um no, no no they were they are fundamental to her because i think that they are the outward expression of her inward journey that's the only way that i'm interested in doing superpowers that they express something about who, what's going on in in the old brain, brain and heart of her, um, so we would talk about the powers every day. And in fact, I'm actually downplaying how much we did talk about the powers. It was a long and arduous task figuring out what those powers would be, not because, um, not just because of what we knew it was going to connect to into, or what we were proposed that it might be connected into in terms of the larger MCU, but also um, exactly that, the, the the logistics of it are they infinite? Do they? The questions that Taisha's asking her in the finale. She's like, are they infinite? Do you have to recharge? Like the amount of days you spent debating that, how she's physically channeling them? does it come separate does it separate from her body? Is it always connected from her body and then it separates out the minutia of that. My goodness, there's also a document on 50 different versions of what those power sets could be. And then that's before you even bring in the directors or the, or even Sana Aman or even the VFX teams who then have to actually make that exist and be real and add like logic to our brains of like, yeah, that's cool what you guys are proposing, but how on earth would we do that? So that's before we even get to that point. So yes, there was a lot of, there was so much conversation about it that I'm really excited to have the days where we're full on debating like issues to do with our backgrounds too. It's a good mix.
2: (laughs) Now, you've been attached to this going back, I think, to 2018 or 2019, right?
0: 19. My meets meeting was 2019, yeah.
2: So you've had an awful lot of time to be immersed in the conversational world online about this show and about this property and the things people have to say on both sides. What are you going to miss the most about having the constant online conversation about it and what are you going to miss say the least about having the constant online conversation about this
0: um it's interesting because i'm actually quite mindful about engaging in online conversations about any of this firstly like i've done it as the show's come out but prior to that i've pretty much done radio silence aside from retweet an announcement because i'm so mindful i think because i've i grew up on internet culture i know what it is to be part of fandom whether it's for this or kind of like i mean i was on so many weird verhoeven like Dedicated fan sites. What's wrong with me? But um the the so I'm part. I understand that. I'm also part of like ga- the gaming culture when I was growing up. Was such a massive gamer, so I kind of know what it is to be a massive fan of a thing. Um, and so I saw a lot of it. I think also for me personally as an individual, I can't speak to kind of what other creatives go through. I kind of have to be very careful about what I expose myself to because some of it can be so forcefully stated and vitriolic, shall we say, um, and like. I don't know, if you know you have clinical depression and ADHD, like, don't look. That's kind of my approach to these things. I'm like, I, I'm, I've gone to the point in my life where I'm like, you know what? I know what's healthy for this broken brain. It's not looking on the internet for what people are saying about me. And it's not looking on the internet for what people are hypothesizing could be what the show's about. Um, and because otherwise I'll just kind of start ruminating and fixating. And it's just a very dangerous spiral. And I really had a job to do, guys. So, there's this, uh, so I've actually been quite mindful of protecting myself. Um, and I recommend that for all creators going forward. <laughs> Good advice. Good,
1: same for journalists too. Um, you know, beyond Miss Marvel now. That- world out there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you know, now that you've got the show in the can here, what's next for you?
0: Oh my gosh. I'm um, so, oh my gosh, I wish I could tell you. Um, I'm working for you at the moment that I just, I'm so, I can't believe I get to work with who I'm working with. And when people find out, oh, I can't wait. um So I'm working for you right now that's really incredible. And it's like, beyond my wildest dreams that i get to be working on this um and that's been such a joy and such a creative collaboration i feel so like valued and it's just been so great um so that's really thrilling i can't wait to share that with the world and i can't tell you a single thing about it which sucks is you, it in the mcu no it is not it is outside of the MCU um and then uh the next kind of big bisher thing for me is I want to direct more than anything I want to direct and so I'm currently in the process of working on my current my feature that is going to be my directorial debut and it's yeah I'm really excited I'm kind of going into I think Miss Marvel is certainly the most earnest thing I will ever create which is I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing in terms of me going forward in my life um and I think the next thing for me is kind of to tap into like the deep misery inside me and make that entertaining. And um, that's
1: what I'm chasing next. Well, that sounds like something I'm going to want to watch. So the question that we always wrap with, what have you been watching and enjoying? Okay, so much.
0: Why do I con- how do I make time to consume so many things? I I know that like it's it's not I'm rewatching it. But I've got this obsession with Escape from Danamora. Like I keep I feel like in the UK especially, like people watch th- this is a masterpiece. So I've genuinely have I know it only came out in twenty eighteen, but I've rewatched it every single year. So I'm currently in the middle of my Escape of Dynamora rewatch because I think it's genuinely a masterpiece and we should all watch it. Um and then I'm also obsessed with yellow jacket, so I think I'm gonna start a rewatch of that. Also I think Dope Sick, I know I'm listing Emmy nominees, but like Dope Sick was another masterpiece. What incredible work. I, I just can't believe, oh my goodness, because so much of it is information delivery, but it's just so brutalizing and visceral. It's just an incredible work, incredible work. So I just,
1: I love television so much. So I've been watching those three and a lot more. Obviously, thank you so much for joining us this week and congratulations on Miss Marvel. Thank you so
0: much. What a pleasure. Take care.
2: The full first season of Miss Marvel is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Number five. As usual, we wrap
1: things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got Everything's Trash on Freeform, Resident Evil on Netflix, Hulu has Victoria's Secret, Angels and Demons, and HBO debuts the rehearsal. Dan, what you got?
2: There, there are certainly options here. Uh, we mentioned earlier that Phoebe Robinson and Jonathan Groff re-upped their deal with ABC Signature, and so, Let's start with Everything's Trash, which is loosely kind of semi-autobiographical, maybe, starring Phoebe Robinson as a podcaster. In this particular case, it's a solo podcast, it appears, as opposed to Two Dope Queens, which she has done for years with Jessica Williams. Uh, and the podcast is called Everything's Trash, but... Her character is both a podcaster who podcasts her dirty laundry out into the world, but she also has a brother who is running for elective office. And so naturally, there are complications involving those two different worlds. And the brother who's in politics is also true of Phoebe Robinson's life. Um, I liked a lot of everything's trash there are also a lot of things that don't make sense to me about it I, I don't know why it's on freeform it feels as if it's a limiting factor to the show that they can't swear and that they have to be very circuitous about all of the sexy time that phoebe's character is having there there are a lot of Odd placement things that made me wonder if this is the kind of show that really would have been better on a uh, a streaming platform or on HBO, which is where the various Two Dope Queens uh, specials aired. I mean,
1: just to play devil's advocate for a second, it is on the streaming platform. It airs the next day on Hulu because this is a Tara, this is actually Tara Duncan, the freeform and Onyx Collective president. It's her first show that she developed since coming over to the network. And, you know, we talk so much on, on other shows about when they have it, when freeform has a hit show, cruel summer, et cetera. Everyone watched it on Hulu. So, you know, in interviews. Tara Duncan will tell you the same thing, that they do have a streaming service. Their content does debut on on a streaming service.
2: Sure, but there are still restrictions and limitations that being a show on Freeform has that being a show on Hulu proper, just Hulu, does not have. And we've seen a lot of the places that straddle those two worlds, as you say, kind of eliminating those boundaries. Like at this point, there's pretty much nothing apparently that you can't say or show on fx slash fx on hulu the shows that go back and forth between them they are all tvma and whatever this is really not that and i think that probably there are barriers or boundaries that are put up in front of things um, entirely arbitrarily that i don't know benefit the show creatively I, i i think also probably that Freeform in this world don't necessarily have as much comfort with doing this kind of show. Whereas if it had been a a Comedy Central show, you understood who you you could understand how it would be in the vein of Broad City or something to that effect. And I I think it's a little bit more unformed and undeveloped than it perhaps needed to be. Uh, But I think that also. Phoebe Rumsen really just is a lot of fun. She's very, very, very funny. And she's the reason to keep watching this. And I can, this is one of those shows where probably I can imagine how it would be a significantly better show in a second season where just simply comfort with working within these limitations, whatever they happen to be, or alternatively the show just getting moved to Hulu in a hypothetical second season or Hulu exclusive. So, yeah i but i was you know i found it enjoyable enough i never found it straight up breakout hilarious in the way that i guess i probably wished i could have i don't know it's it's not it's definitely not bad it's definitely worth watching it's definitely not gonna be my top recommendation for this weekend, though, because my top recommendation is definitely going to be Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal on HBO, which premieres on Friday night, and it's premiering in the Friday 11 p.m. This is a weird comedy, and it might be too weird for mainstream audiences slot that has been previously used for uh, Los Espookis. Seriously, by the way, where's my second season of Los Espookis, HBO? I would like my second season of Los Espookis. Thank you. Uh, And also... Uh, how-to with John Wilson, which coincidentally enough happens to have been executive produced by Nathan Fielder. So, if people don't know Nathan Fielder, I really don't know how you would approach the rehearsal. If you know Nathan for you, then you have some sense of what it is that he does. The sort of strange mixture of, of deadpan Canadian whatever it is that he does mixed with documentary, mixed with comedy that's sometimes really really cringy and it's tough to watch sometimes so this is i would say this is less potentially exploitative then Nathan For You, where you always kind of felt a little bit uncomfortable with the real people that Nathan was working with, because some of them probably had no way at all of knowing what it was that he was doing, who he was and what his game was. And so I sometimes felt a little bad for them. But it's also a show that at its best was a miraculous, wonderful show. Um, this basically anyone involved with this show could have known what Nathan For You was. He mentions several times his previous show to people and, and anyone who wanted to could have known what he does. The gimmick is basically that inspired by his own social awkwardness and his own difficulty with initial interactions. HBO has given him money to do rehearsals for people, basically restaging or pre-staging important conversations, life events, whatever. So that people who, aren't comfortable with these moments, can rehearse over and over and over again to try figuring out what the right way to do it is. So the first episode involves someone who plays regular trivia and somehow came to tell his trivia team that he had an advanced degree, and now he has to admit to them that he does not, in fact, have an advanced degree. Doesn't seem like high stakes. To him, it seems like high stakes, and Nathan Fielder stages it so that the guy can have rehearsal conversations with actors playing his trivia team. He restages the entire bar where they have trivia basically makes a replica of the bar from top to bottom. And it's, it's a little bit poignant. It's a little bit funny. The first episode, I thought was a lot of kind of establishing the parameters of the show, because the premise is is very outlandish and very a little bit silly, and you have to just get into it. The second episode introduces a woman who's in her 40s. She's a born-again Christian. She was uh, in her youth. She was a drug addict and a bit of a wayward soul, and she's reached her 40s, and she hasn't had kids, and she's wondering if this is the right time. So Nathan basically stages an entire new life for her at a farmhouse in rural Oregon, And simulates over the course of several weeks, the experience of having children from infancy up to teenage years, including hiring actors to play her kids and including basically having to swap out babies and child actors because of organ labor laws. And as it goes along, Nathan becomes increasingly personally involved in this situation. And that's all I can say about that. Uh, But it's. As it goes along, the increasingly meta, increasingly emotional and increasingly crazy story and structure that the show is built around becomes really, really impressive. And at times, it's extremely funny. At times, it's genuinely provocative. At times, there's a sweetness and a sadness to it. Uh, and I don't know how it plays if you don't know Nathan for you and if you don't know Nathan Fielder's thing. But it is it's sort of in it is it continues to be in the same vein as How To With John Wilson, as the Joe Parra show, et cetera. The other things I compared it to is the Andy Daly remake, reboot, whatever of Review, which is one of my favorite shows in the past 20 years. Uh It's entirely scripted. So that's. Different, But there still are similar elements of, you know, how do you face life and its daunting challenges by getting either, in one case, rehearsals with a bunch of actors or hiring an entirely unqualified guy to review all of these experiences? They're equally outlandish in their own ways, uh, and I think that it's complimentary text. I also, in my review, mentioned The Joe Schmo Show, which is a show that a small number of people cherished and many, many, many more people have no idea ever existed. It's like that. Uh, yeah, the rehearsal requires a fair amount of buy in, but if you buy in, I think some people are going to really, really love the show. And I think for, for logical reasons, I think, I think by the end, I was deeply invested in it in ways that really, really surprised me. And the last of the things that I would probably want to touch on for the next week is. Uh, next week is Baseball All Star Week. And I believe that, Leslie, you will have some involvement with the festivities given that it's All Star Week in Los Angeles. So, Woo-hoo!
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to the Home Run Derby as well as the All Star game. I'm so damn excited. And I'm recording this wearing my new Dodger All Star cap. So I'm very, very excited. Hasn't been in LA since 1980. And I, let's see, I, I went to the game. In 1989, when it was in Anaheim, and I had the very, very, very last row in the stadium seats, and I had to stand up to see where Bo Jackson's home run landed.
2: <laughs> I'm trying to think if I would if I would actually want to be at the game itself, but I think that the home run derby this year is going to be an absolute blast. I think that between all of the big-name participants, and then you have Albert Pujols there for kind of – Tio. For, for nostalgia, and then you have, um, and then you have Julio Rodriguez from Seattle there as the young generation. I think that I think it's a really, really good group. I would I would think that that was a lot of fun. So anyway, but incidentally, that's not incidentally what I'm talking about here. I, uh, what I'm talking about is what ESPN is premiering with the programming, which is the seven part Derek Jeter documentary, The Captain, which I watched five parts of this weekend. Um And yeah, I, it's. On one hand, it would be easy for people to say, Dan's a Red Sox fan. He would never want to watch a seven-hour TV show about Derek Jeter. And this is, of course, absolutely correct. I, I would probably not. On the other hand... I Does it
1: get into how he basically destroyed the Marlins? And uh, then basically gave up <laughs> and walked away?
2: Unclear, because I've only seen of five, I've only seen five of seven episodes. So the last two episodes probably could. On the other hand, it's unlikely to go into depth on it, because... And Yankees fans know this to be true. Derek Jeter is a really, really boring guy. This is just, it's his brand. It is the thing that he has developed his entire brand around, was being non-controversial and beloved by as many people as humanly possible. And seven hours is a lot to spend with someone who is just really kind of, And once again, lest anybody say, oh, well, of course, Dan, the Boston sports fans fan wouldn't like this. The same problem existed with with the Tom Brady show, uh, God of the Arena or whatever it was called. God of the Arena, I think, was the Spartacus uh, spinoff. But yes, the arena, whatever the Tom Brady thing was, Tom Brady also is somebody who, while he is athletically exceptional, is not an interesting enough personality to spend 10 or 7 hours with. So yeah, it's this, like it's like
1: if uh, the Dodger equivalent would have been like doing seven hours with Corey Seeger, who is basically a, a <laughs> robot born and bred to play baseball.
2: Or on the or on the uh the sticking with LA, similarly the Magic Johnson documentary on Apple TV Plus. Magic Johnson is a much more compelling personality than either Tom Brady or Derek Jeter. And not only that, he has a much more interesting life because of the number of different personal evolutions, whether it is the whole contracting HIV and becoming a face of an entire movement through that, whether it is his second act career as an entrepreneur and developer, all of that. Magic Johnson has layers to his career and whatever that actually could justify a four-hour program. He just was not being very voluble and thus the series suffered. Here, it's not just that Derek Jeter isn't being voluble. He's not interesting even when he is. And so, again, five hours was more than I had any interest in here, and it's a seven-hour series. So, again, to recap, if you are a Yankees fan, you will absolutely surely enjoy The Captain. If you are not a Yankee fan, there is zero chance that you are going to be entertained by that it is it is not one that is going to cross o- cross crossover this is not this is not the last dance this is this is its own thing that will be directed at its own small audience and if this had all just been made for the yes network i never would have had to review it but it's free espn so anyway that's uh that is premiering next week tied with baseball festivities um You have Everything's Trash on Freeform, which uh, has already premiered, and you can check it out. Uh, Phoebe Robinson really is extremely talented. And if you haven't listened to her podcast with Jessica Williams, it's really good. Uh, And also the specials, the, the two Dope Queen specials that were on HBO were really, really good as well. And then the thing that I'm really recommending people check out, albeit with eyes wide open, whether or not you know Nathan Fielder or not, the rehearsal is something special. It is just something special that is not going to be for everyone. Uh, but I, I recommend it. It is a weird head-scratching thing. Maybe people would be better off watching a few episodes at a stretch because I don't know necessarily that the first episode is compelling enough. Whatever. Uh, but it's it's a really good series. And I think it will probably find a larger audience than Nathan for you ever did. So, yeah, people should check that out. And that's a long enough podcast for this week.
1: For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV hyphen reviews. And before we wrap things up, a very special shout out to friend of the five, Kate Stanhope and her husband, Lucas, on the birth of their beautiful daughter.
2: Kate Stanhope, who is one of the people who I am certain will enjoy the Captain.
1: Absolutely. Well, this feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you so much for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast.
2: Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to hear what works, what doesn't work, what annoyed you, etc., etc. If you have questions, though, for future mailbag segments, and maybe next week's a good... Mailbag segment week. If you got any questions or whatever, keep keep the beat going. You can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan.